Alright, well, it's great to be back this morning, and as I just mentioned to you, I just passed out a document that we're going to be making reference to later on in the message, so my encouragement to you is put that somewhere, uh, out of sight, out of mind for now, I'll direct your attention to it when the time comes in the lesson, and um, I hope that it will be a great encouragement to you both now, and hopefully it's something that you can use as a resource for future study of God's Word in the future. But let's jump into our third study today, our third study of Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 to 14. During this third session, we're going to be looking at verses 7 to 10, and it's my prayer that we will continue to feast on the glory of God revealed through the gospel of Jesus Christ throughout the rest of gospel camp. So open up your Bibles to Ephesians 1. We're going to read the whole passage again this morning. Hopefully this is starting to get embedded into your thinking. I was so grateful to hear that some of our more zealous students not only read Ephesians 2, 1-10 to during their quiet time, but they actually read the entire book of Ephesians. So hopefully this letter will just be saturated in your thinking, especially these verses that we're considering thus far in gospel camp. Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, notice what Paul writes once more. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you in peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the kind intention of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. In Christ, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished on us. In all wisdom and insight, He made known to us the mystery of His will, according to His kind intention which He purposed in Him, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. In Christ also. We have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to His purpose, who works all things after the counsel of His will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be the praise of His glory. In Christ you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance, with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of His glory. This is the word of the living God, and may He write its eternal truths upon our hearts this morning. Why did Jesus have to die? You ever thought about that question before? Why did Jesus have to die? Was His death really necessary in order for God to forgive sinners? Was the death of God's only begotten Son really the only way for salvation to be accomplished? I mean, after all, if God's all-powerful, if He's all-knowing, if He's sovereign, if He's created all things, couldn't there have been some other way for Him to go about rescuing sinners from His wrath? I mean, why did Christ really have to die? Well, over the past 2,000 years, these are merely a few of the questions that have been raised when reflecting on the doctrine of the atonement. That might be a new concept for, I would imagine, many of you here this morning. The doctrine of the atonement and how that relates to the death of Christ and how it relates to the gospel. Let me just give you a definition of what I mean by the doctrine of the atonement to chew on. It should be in your handouts. I believe I saw it there on the page that is in your notes pertaining to session 3, should be right there at the top. What is the doctrine of the atonement? 
What do we mean by this biblical truth? Here's my working definition, largely influenced by Dr. John MacArthur's biblical doctrine textbook. The doctrine of the atonement refers to how the death of Jesus enables a person to be forgiven of their sins committed against God and allows them to enter into a relationship with God for all of eternity future. It's a working idea of what we mean by the doctrine of the atonement. The doctrine of the atonement gets to the heart of what Paul writes here in Ephesians 1, 7 and following. We've touched on a little bit over the course of gospel camp already. But in the final analysis, the doctrine of the atonement clearly explains that the only way for a sinner to be reconciled to his holy creator is through sacrifice. And not just any sacrifice. A holy sacrifice. A once-for-all sacrifice that would be pleasing to God Most High. My friends, the only hope that you and I have to be made right with the God whom we have rebelled against, the only way for any person, past, present, or future, to be made right with God is through a sacrifice that would be pleasing in His sight. And by God's grace, we know that such a sacrifice has been rendered on behalf of sinners, namely those who would believe upon Christ. Notice what's written in 1 Peter 2.24 about this reality. 1 Peter 2.24, wonderful text. Let me move out of the wind just a little bit here. Jesus bore our sins in His body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by His wounds you are healed. That's the atonement of Jesus Christ. That's the perfect sacrifice of Christ for the believer. That sinners through sacrifice would be as it were healed from their iniquity. That that they would be able by the power of God transforming them and working in and through them by the Holy Spirit to live a life that's pleasing to Him after encountering Christ by faith. Let me make this abundantly clear for us today. And this was something that I alluded to last night with the high school students during our small group discussion time. You can't have a biblical understanding of the Gospel unless you have a correct understanding of, of course, the character of God and the person and work of Jesus Christ. You must see an accurate understanding. You must have a biblically accurate understanding regarding the purpose and necessity of Christ's work of atonement for sinners. If you lose the atoning work of Christ, you don't have the biblical gospel. And I gave our high school students a homework assignment to do after they leave gospel camp. I told them to go home, get on YouTube, and type in American Gospel. There's a 50-minute-ish video there. It's a documentary. And what that documentary does is it sets forth the biblical gospel. It's going to reiterate a lot of what you heard this weekend. And against that, that documentary also sets forth unbiblical distortions of the gospel. And that unbiblical distortion, I guess there's more than just one, there's many uh, varieties of uh, a gospel that's been distorted throughout our world. That's what many self-identifying Christians believe in today. So I, I would just encourage you to go after Gospel Camp and watch that video. It's 50 minutes, maybe, maybe less even. I don't even know if it's an hour. But invest the time to watch that video and You'll see time and time again this truth that the gospel hinges upon Christ's atoning work. In fact, the stakes couldn't be any higher regarding the purpose and necessity of Christ's atonement. Galatians 1.9, Paul writing this in the mid to late 40s AD, about 20 years before writing the letter we're studying here. Paul says this about the gospel and its relation to the atonement. That if you get 
the Gospel wrong, if you believe that any sinner is saved in any other way apart from God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone, His life, His death, and resurrection, if you add any works to that Gospel, if you pervert that Gospel in any way, shape, or form, you have believed a different Gospel, Paul says. And by virtue of believing a different Gospel, you are under the curse of God. It's, it's evidence that you were not saved by virtue of believing a false Gospel. And the consequences of false belief, no matter how sincere you might be, is eternal punishment in hell. I say all this by way of preface to really try to get you guys acquainted with the importance of what we're going to be talking about this morning. Really the importance of what we've already talked about the last two lessons. This is a fundamental truth of biblical Christianity. You cannot be a Christian and get the doctrine of the atonement wrong. As we're going to see together throughout the rest of this lesson, in verses 7-10 to of Ephesians 1, we're going to find how the doctrine of the atonement not only gives us a working knowledge and understanding of the gospel message, but we're also going to see how the atoning work of Christ is at the center of God's plan for human history. It's, it's at the front and center of God's purposes for this world and this universe for which He's created to His own glory. You see, from eternity past, God was pleased to not only use the crucifixion of Christ to serve as the acceptable sacrifice for believers, though that's certainly the case. He certainly did that. But even more than that, my friends, what we're going to find today from our text is that God strategically planned the atoning work of Christ at the cross to be the culmination, to be the apex of how He chose to glorify Himself in creation. So not only is our salvation at stake regarding the doctrine of the atonement, but the glory of Almighty God hinges upon what we're talking about today. Hope that got your minds working a little bit as to what we're going to be talking about now as we turn to verses 7-10. to As we look at this text, I have two primary headings. Those should be in your workbooks as well. Two primary headings that's going to be our outline for today's message. First, heading number one, in verse 7 through the first half of verse 8, we're going to see how the gospel mission is realized in Jesus Christ. The gospel mission is realized in Jesus Christ. And then second, second heading, and really this is the bulk of the text, second half of verse 8 through the end of verse 10, we're going to observe how the gospel mystery is realized in Jesus Christ. And that might kind of scare you a little bit, like, wait, are we going on a wild goose chase here or something? What do you mean mystery? Well, hold on to the edge of your seat. We'll get to that in just a few moments. Gospel mission realized in Jesus Christ. Verse 7, first half of verse 8, gospel mystery realized in Jesus Christ. Second half of verse 8, end of verse 10. So that's our outline. Let's now start our interaction with these verses beginning in verse 7 in the first half of verse 8. Notice again what Paul writes here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He writes, In Christ we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished on us. The Apostle Paul couldn't be any more clear in these verses. When Jesus offered Himself on the cross, He perfectly redeems every person who will ever place their faith in Him. Whether speaking in reference to old covenant believers who looked ahead to the Messiah who was to come, or referring to believers on this side of the cross who looks back and, and sees with full clarity the person and work of Jesus Christ and His death on the cross on behalf of sinners. Regardless of where you find yourself in the realm of human history, the salvation of every elect sinner was purchased by Christ at the cross. According to the testimony of Scripture, 
The believer's salvation and the believer's forgiveness of sin is inextricably linked. It is directly connected with the sacrifice of Christ. Notice what the writer to the Hebrews states in chapter 7, verses 26 and 27. Good cross-reference that makes this point abundantly clear. Hebrews chapter 7, verses 26 and 27 says the following. For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest as the Lord Jesus Christ, who is holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily, like those Old Covenant or Old Testament high priests, to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sin, and then for the sins of the people. Because this he did once for all when He offered up Himself. Christ is the the perfect sacrifice for sin. He's the perfect sacrificer for sinners. He is both the one who is the perfect once for all sacrifice for the sin of all who would ever believe in Him. And He also goes to the cross on behalf of His people so that they would have a mediator between them as a sinner and their holy Creator who they have transgressed His law, who they have rebelled against, who they have failed to meet in thought, word, and deed, perfect conformity to His law's demands. As we clearly see in this Hebrews text, eternal redemption was accomplished through the perfect sacrifice made by Christ. This is fundamental to what Paul is saying in Ephesians 1.7. This is contrary to much of what you find in other sources of religion. It's contrary to first century Jew, the first century Jews and Jews to this day who reject Christ as the Messiah. It's contrary to the claims of Roman Catholics who believe that you have to be baptized and you have to take to the Mass and you have to go confess your sins to a priest and do all sorts of of rituals and practices to be made right with God. It's contrary to Islam who believes that Jesus is just some prophet sent by God, but He's not really God's Son. He didn't really die on the cross for sinners. It is contrary to the atheist who says there is no God and Jesus was either the result of a tragedy in the first century or He was just a fool for trying to lie about His identity to gain a religious following. Every world religion takes this truth of Scripture, takes this truth of Christianity and completely disregards it. But my friends, this truth of Christ's crucifixion, His work of atonement for sinners, it is at the front and center of our faith. And my friends, there is no salvation apart from this. John 19.30 states exactly what Christ thought about what He was doing at the cross. You want to know the significance of Christ's work of atonement? Well, look at what Christ Himself says in 19.30. John 19.30. He says in John 19.30 that God's wrath was perfectly satisfied through His death. He said one Greek word to telestai, it is finished. I have accomplished salvation for every sinner who the Father gave for me to save in eternity past. Their debt is paid in full. They have a Savior now. They have a mediator between holy God and themselves as sinful man and woman. And I want to note some other important observations about the work of atonement. This wasn't just some hypothetical sacrifice made by Christ. Ephesians 1.7 doesn't allow us to say that, that God is simply hoping and, as it were, praying that sinners would just trust in Christ. That, that they would just come and receive a, a, a potentially savable sacrifice. No, my friends. Jesus perfectly saved everybody who would ever believe at the cross. Not one drop of His blood was shed in vain. There's not a soul in hell right now and there will never be a soul in hell for all of eternity that Christ shed His blood for in vain. He perfectly saves every sinner who He came to save and every sinner who would ever 
believe. Notice what Christ says in John 6, 37-40 to this end. John 6, 37-40. Another good text to possibly write down for further reflection. Christ says this. This is the divine perspective on salvation, particularly with reference to His atoning work. Christ's atoning work explained by Christ Himself. He says, All that the Father gives Me will come to Me. And the one who comes to Me, I will certainly not cast out. Let me just stop there really quickly. For any of you guys wondering, will Christ really save me? And we talked about election last night. Maybe I'm just not elect. Or maybe my family member is not elect. Or, you know, I really want to share the gospel with this person in my life, but they're just too bad. I mean, you don't understand how wicked they are. They want nothing to do with God. Well, will Christ really save them? You know what Christ says? He says, if they come to me, I will not cast them out. I will pluck them out of the fires of hell I will clothe them in my perfect, spotless righteousness. I will adopt them as a son or daughter. And I will welcome them into my eternal kingdom. That's my promise. I will not cast out those who come to me. And know this too, if you come to Christ, it's because the Father gave you to Christ. It's a beautiful two-sided coin regarding the absolute sovereignty of God and the absolute responsibility of man, which we talked about last night. But Christ goes on, verse 38. He says, I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. And this is the will of Him who sent me, that all that He has given me, I lose none, but will raise them up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise Him up on the last day. My friends, this is the the eternal plan of God. This is His mission declared by the Lord Jesus Christ. It was the triune God's plan and purpose to elect a remnant of sinners for His Son to redeem through His perfect life, His death on the cross, and His bodily resurrection from the dead. If you're here this weekend and you're a believer, and I trust that several of you are, if you're here this weekend and you're a believer, if you trusted in Christ as your Lord and Savior, I want you to rejoice in your heart of hearts that your sins are forgiven. You have a perfect sacrifice, a perfect atonement that has been given on your behalf some 2,000 years ago, and that can never be nullified. There is not a single drop of God's wrath that Christ did not drink on your behalf, believer, at the cross. To Tetelestai, Jesus says, I paid for it in full. It's finished. There is no condemnation for those who will trust in Jesus Christ. Romans 8.1 As the old hymn has so beautifully put it, perhaps many of you have sung it at church at some time or another Jesus paid it all, all to Him we owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, He washed it white as snow. That's the atonement. That's the Gospel, my friends. But on the other hand, for those here who who may not be a Christian, maybe this is all new to you, or maybe you've grown up in a Christian home, in a God-exalting, Bible-teaching church, but you've just taken all this stuff and you've stored it in your head, and you've not surrendered your life to the Lordship of Christ by faith. You're continuing to live a life of secret sin. You're continuing to live a life your way. But you feel conviction now. And you felt it last night. And you haven't been able to shake it. And you're trying so hard to not confront the biblical teaching. Even now as I preach, you're having an internal struggle. Even now, that's you. You know you're not in Christ. You know you're not living how you should be. Here is my plea for you. And here is the ultimate hope that you can have. If you surrender to Christ's Lordship, He is a kind and gracious and merciful and loving Lord and Master and Savior. We just read from John 6.40. He will not cast you out. If you come to Him by faith, He will receive you into His eternal 
family, you need only believe. Repent from your sin. Repent from your life of rebellion. Trust in that perfect atonement that's been made. It can be yours through faith in Christ. And as we noted last night, you'll receive every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places as a result. What more could any of us possibly want or have need of in this life and in the life to come? Well, that takes care of verse 7 and the first half of verse 8 in reference to the gospel mission being realized or made manifest in Jesus Christ. Let's look at the second heading now, the text that's tied to this second heading. Heading number two, the gospel mystery realized in Jesus Christ. The gospel mystery realized in Jesus Christ as seen from the second half of verse 8 to the end of verse 10. Look at those verses again with me in your Bible. Paul notes that in all wisdom and insight, God made known to us the mystery of His will according to His kind intention which He purposed in Christ with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times. That is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. So now we get back to this idea of mystery, right? I mean, how many of you guys like a good mystery? Oh, come on. Some, okay, finally some hands come up. I knew some of you guys like mysteries. I like a good mystery. Maybe that's what came to your mind when I read that heading. Man, what, are we going to try to discover some hidden riddle or some secret in the Bible that pertains to the gospel of Jesus Christ? Well, newsflash. Our 21st century understanding of mystery has nothing to do with what the Bible has to say regarding the concept of mystery. We should praise God for that. In our day, we think of something being a mystery. We have a tendency to think that it's something that's really difficult to uncover. Maybe something even impossible to figure out. How many of you guys have heard of a cold case murder? Murder that goes unsolved, right? It's a real mystery to try to figure out who murdered the other person or who committed the crime, right? Or you might think of Sherlock Holmes when you think of a mystery. I've got to go out and, and solve this, this riddle or this really tough situation. I've got to look for clues. And I may never really have success in uncovering the goal behind the mystery I'm trying to solve. That's how we tend to think of mysteries in our day. Something elusive, something ethereal, something out there. Scripture is the exact opposite. In Scripture, when we consider this theme or this idea of mystery, what Paul means when he uses the term mystery, he is referring to something that is a full revelation of something that was partially revealed in the past. A mystery in Scripture. I think this might be in your handouts, but if not... I want to repeat that definition. Here's a mystery as taught in Scripture. It refers to the full revelation of something that was only partially known or partially understood or partially revealed in the past. It's not something that we need to go on a wild goose chase in order to find. Something that God has graciously revealed in fullness now, though He had revealed it in seed form previously. And this understanding of mystery gets to the heart of what Paul's saying in the second half of verse 8 through the end of verse 10. Notice especially what he says in the second half of verse 8 and the first half of verse 9, though. This clarifies further what we're talking about with regard to mystery. He writes, In all wisdom and insight, God made known to us the mystery of His will. So, again, we don't have to look for this under rocks. We don't have to seek some mystical experience from God to uncover some divine mystery. No, my friends, He's clearly revealed this mystery that Paul's referring to in the pages of Scripture, and He's manifested it through the annals of human history. According to Paul, the mystery of God's will has been made clear to every believer. The mystery of God's will has been made clear to every believer. We're going to talk about what the substance of that mystery is in just a few moments. But before we get there, I want to make a few observations pertaining to verse 9 and 10 
And these observations are in keeping with the motivation behind God revealing the mystery of His will and the substance of the mystery of God's will. So we're going to get to the substance later, but let's talk for a few moments about the motivation because I think there's some key insights that we need to be aware of from this portion of Scripture. I'm going to read verse 9 and 10, and then we'll unpack the motivation and then later the substance of the mystery of God's will. He says, God made known to us the mystery of His will, and notice this, according to God's kind intention, which He purposed in Christ, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times. So notice this. What was the motivation? What was God's ultimate driving motivation for revealing this mystery that we're going to uncover in just a few moments from the page of Scripture? It was in accordance with His kind intention. And has that not been what we've talked about all weekend so far? That God is a kind Creator? He is a gracious and merciful God? Psalm 145.9 notes this about God. The Lord is good to some people. No, the Lord is good to all people. And His mercies are over all of His works. It is at the heart of God's very being. It is foundational to God's own character to be kind, to be gracious, to be merciful, to be generous to His creation. Despite the sinfulness of man and the brokenness that has plagued the entire universe, God continues to lavish all of His creatures with good and bountiful gifts. We talked about this last night with the high school boys. Some of the most successful, prosperous people in the world who enjoy great lives, they're as far away from God as possible, and yet God gives them so many good and gracious gifts for His own purposes. Because He's kind. Matthew 5, 45. God causes His Son to rise on the good and the evil. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. What's that saying? It means that God is so gracious that even though He's not chosen to save all people, He's going to give good gifts to everybody. Food and clothing and shelter and jobs, in relationships. All of these things that we experience in this life come from the hands of a good and gracious Father. He's the Father of believers, but He's also broadly the Father of creation in that every good and gracious gift that anybody receives comes from His bounty. It is impossible for God to do Anything that is not connected with his kind intentions. His kindness is super abundant to creation. Now, notice this other aspect of God's motivation for revealing the mystery of his will. This was in accordance with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times. And I have to admit, that was the hardest part of this entire text to unravel. Kind of, you know, Paul, it's fascinating. I didn't mention this in any of my previous lessons because I didn't want to lose you, but some of you guys may find this somewhat fascinating. You know, in the original language that Paul wrote this in, verse 1 to verse 14 is one sentence. You know how hard it was for me to read all those sentences, verses 1 to 14, because there's some pretty long sentences. Well, Paul, he clearly loved run-on sentences because that was all one long sentence. And he, he has a tendency in his writings to make parenthetical statements. He, he has a tendency to kind of interrupt his train of thought to insert more truth or more perspective on what he's trying to say. And that's exactly what he does here in the first half of verse 10. What does he mean by an administration suitable to the fullness of the times? How does that fit with this idea of the mystery of the gospel being realized in Christ? Well... In verse 10, Paul uses a specific term for administration that refers to the management of a household. Okay, this is a word picture here. This may help you understand what Paul's saying. He's saying that God is like the manager of a house. He's like, he's like your dad who oversees 
a mighty, large, vast house. And that house is the entire universe. God is the steward. He's the manager. He's the overseer of all the cosmos. And He intricately manages and oversees and supervises every detail that unfolds in His house, as it were. In that universe that God has created and sits on His throne and reigns over as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. As the author and sustainer of all things in reality. So what Paul's saying is that God is in control of all things and that His motivation to reveal the mystery of the Gospel was just a corollary to the fact that He's sovereign over whatever occurs in His own house, in His universe, in His creation. Just like a father oversees, if he's a, if he's a good father, a godly earthly father, he carefully manages all the affairs that unfold under His roof. Just as a good, godly, earthly father does that, so also God, the eternal, all-knowing, sovereign, heavenly Father, He sits over the entire universe from the vast stars billions of light years away to the smallest molecule. He is intimately aware with everything that unfolds in His creation, in His house as it were. That's what Paul's saying in terms of using this word administration. Now, he also mentions another term. He mentions this term called the fullness of the times. So the motivation for God revealing the mystery of the gospel, it was in accordance with His kind intention. It was in accordance with His perfect management of all the universe. And it was in accordance with the fullness of the times. Now what does Paul mean when he notes the fullness of the times in this text. Well, he uses it elsewhere. He uses it in Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 to 5. If you have your Bible, you can flip over there. I'm going to read the text for us as well. Galatians 4, verses 4 and 5. It's a good cross-reference to help us get our arms around what Paul's trying to say. Verse 4 says this, going into verse 5, But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that He might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. What's Paul saying there in light of what he's just written in Ephesians? He's saying simply this, that at the perfect moment in human history, God purposed to send His Son to live the perfect life, to die a death on the cross, bearing God's wrath on behalf of every person who would ever believe, to be raised victoriously from the grave three days after His death by crucifixion, to appear to more than 500 witnesses within a span of 40 days after His resurrection, and to ascend into heaven. God, from eternity past, chose the perfect moment in human history to accomplish His work of redemption. He sent Christ at the perfect moment to be the once-for-all sacrifice for the sin of His people. This is all in accordance with God's kind intention His perfect management of all the universe and His perfect knowledge of when Christ needed to come into the world to bring about the salvation of His elect. This is the divine motivation that undergirds the mystery of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. But what purpose does this mystery ultimately serve? What is the the purpose of this mystery? And what is the substance of of this mystery. What is it that God wants to fully disclose to this world through the realization of this gospel mystery? Well, Paul answers that question in the second half of verse 10. Let's look at the substance of the gospel mystery that God has revealed in Scripture. Let's look at the purpose for this mystery. Last part of verse 10. The summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens, and things on the earth. 
What is the substance of the mystery of the Gospel? It's that Jesus Christ would be supremely exalted through His work of redemption in that every knee would bow and every tongue would confess that He is Lord to the glory of God the Father on the last day. It's that Christ would be at the center of everything that would ever unfold on this planet. And that He would reign over the entire universe as King and as Lord for His own glory and for our worship to overflow to Him for all of eternity future in gratitude for who He is and what He's done for us. As I stated before, the unveiling of this mystery was God's goal from eternity past. And this wasn't something that was hidden throughout Scripture and throughout history until Christ came. Remember, mystery refers to something that was partially revealed in the past and then comes to full revelation in the future. So now, notice this. And at this time, I'd encourage you to take out that spare document that I gave you before we began our lesson. In Luke 24, 27, Jesus said that all of the Old Testament were concerning Him. All the Old Testament Scriptures were about Him. He's at the center of the Old Testament. He is the goal of the Old Testament. He's at the center of human history. His glory is the purpose for God's dealings in this universe. And as you see in that document, we're going to take some time to look at just one either explicit prophecy or one very clear allusion to Christ coming in the New Testament, but foreshadowed in the Old Testament. This is going to demonstrate to you that what Paul is saying in our text, verses 7 to 10 of Ephesians 1, what Paul is saying was nothing new in God's plan for human history. It was not something that Old Testament believers were not already looking forward to. It's not something that we as New Testament believers should be surprised by. So my encouragement for you, as we read through this handout, is when you have spare time, maybe when you get home from Gospel Camp, you go through that handout, look at the Old Testament text, look at the New Testament text, see how God's Word forms a perfect tapestry. It is perfectly in harmony and consistent within itself. And Jesus Christ, His glory, His person, His work, it's front and center. The Gospel is realized in Jesus Christ. Let's look at these allusions, prophecies, foreshadows of Christ found in the Old Testament and revealed to us in the New Start in Genesis. In Genesis, Jesus was the seed of the woman that bruised the serpent's head. In Exodus, Jesus was the Passover lamb sacrificed for His people. In Leviticus, we see Jesus represented as the scapegoat who bore the sins of His people on the cross. In Numbers, we see a picture of Christ being crucified just like that bronze serpent was lifted up on the pole and the people of Israel would look to that serpent in faith to be delivered from the fiery serpents. In Deuteronomy, Jesus is foreshadowed to be a prophet like Moses who God would raise up, but greater than Moses. The ultimate self-revelation of God. In Joshua, Jesus is there as the commander of the Lord's army. He is the angel of the Lord that leads the army of God. Same in Judges. In Judges, Jesus appears as the angel of the Lord encouraging Gideon. In Ruth, we find that Jesus would ultimately come later as sinful man's kinsman redeemer. That during His incarnation, eternal God would become eternal man. And He would be like man in every respect so that a suitable sacrifice, a suitable atonement could be made for the sin of the elect. In 1 Samuel, we see a picture of Jesus as the horn of salvation that God would raise up for His people in the fullness of time. 2 Samuel, we see David pictured 
as a type or as a picture or as a forerunner to the ultimate king over Israel, the Lord Jesus Christ, who would come centuries later. In 1 Kings, we have the question, will God indeed dwell on the earth in the person of Jesus Christ? The answer is an emphatic, yes, He will. 2 Kings, we see Elisha multiplying loaves of bread, a picture of what Jesus Christ would do during His earthly ministry in the New Testament. In 1 Chronicles, we find that a son of David would have a kingdom that would last forever and ever. Jesus Christ, David's Son and David's Lord, is that King. Second Chronicles, we see the, the glories of Solomon's wisdom portrayed. He was the most wise man, the most wise king in the Old Testament. But Christ's wisdom, as we find in the New Testament, is even greater than that of King Solomon. In Ezra, we find that God is preserving a physical, earthly lineage that would ultimately bring forth the promised Messiah who in Genesis 3 and throughout the totality of the Old Testament is pictured as the one who would crush the head of the serpent, who would bring about redemption of sin for all of His people. We find that the preservation of the Messianic lineage matters because of God's work in Ezra. And Nehemiah, we see a foreshadowing of Jesus cleansing the temple in Nehemiah 13.8. Purity of worship matters to God, and it mattered to the nth degree to the Lord Jesus Christ. In Esther, though God is not mentioned one time in the book of Esther, He is sovereignly controlling every circumstance in that book, and in that book, we see Mordecai's exaltation from a persecuted Jew to the highest position of honor, just like we find in Christ. He was put to death on a Roman cross, and through His death and His perfect life, He has ascended from the grave, and He is now the the, the King of kings and the Lord of lords who has the highest position of exaltation in the cosmos. He will be the... Some in the substance of the new heavens and the new earth. Revelation 21 and 22. In the book of Job, Jesus, He is the fulfillment of Job's declaration. My Redeemer will be on the earth. I know that He lives. Jesus was Job's Redeemer and He's your Redeemer if you place faith in Him. In the Psalms, particularly Psalm 22, Jesus is the one whose hands and feet were pierced on the cross. Go read Psalm 22. Masterful picture of what Jesus would fulfill in His crucifixion. In Proverbs, Jesus is the Son of God who descends from heaven to save His people and He ascends into heaven to be their advocate and their wisdom at the Father's right hand. In Ecclesiastes, Written by Solomon, again, a man super abundant in wisdom. Jesus is greater than Solomon in his wisdom. And he is a perfect king and a perfect shepherd over the house of Israel and over all those who would come to believe in his name. In the Song of Solomon, Jesus' love for his church is a greater picture, a greater reality than Solomon's love for his bride. Whereas marriage is a sacred covenant between one man and one woman, we will see the the fullness of what marriage signifies for all of eternity future when the church is, as it were, married to Christ. And we enjoy blissful communion with Him, perfect fellowship with one another forever and ever. In Isaiah most famous chapter in Isaiah being Isaiah 53. Jesus is prophesied to be the one who would take away the sin of every believer. Go read Isaiah 53 if you've never done so. Incredible picture of Christ's work of atonement at the cross. In fact, most Jews today have taken that chapter out of the Old Testament. They don't want to read it because you can't read it without seeing Christ. And Jeremiah... Jesus is the branch that is prophesied to spring up from the line of David. In Lamentations, 
Just as Solomon wept over Jerusalem's condition, so also would Christ weep over her condition prior to His work of atonement. In Ezekiel, Jesus is the chief shepherd who would feed God's people physically and spiritually. Just as Israel was exiled and persecuted by the Babylonians, so also will sinners like you and me who trusted in Christ go through this life of exile in a sin-cursed world and we will be with our God and our great high priest and our good shepherd forever and ever. He will meet all of our needs and more in glory. In Daniel, we find that Jesus was prophesied to arrive at the exact period of time that He did. Daniel 9, 24-27. Literally to the year Christ came on the earth. And He perfectly accomplished everything that God sent Him to accomplish. The book of Hosea. Jesus, when Matthew cites Hosea 11 in his Gospel, Jesus is portrayed as the true Son of God, as Israel was a disobedient son as a nation, as Adam was a disobedient son as a representative of all mankind in the garden. Christ is the perfectly obedient Son. He always does the will of God the Father. His food is to be in obedience to God in heaven. In Joel, Jesus would be the name that sinners could call upon to be saved. In Amos, Jesus is foreshadowed as arriving to the tabernacle of David that would be repaired after the exile. And Jesus would go to the temple of God time after time after time throughout His life as pictured in the Gospels. And He would worship God. He would give sacrifice to God. He would do everything that God requires of His worshipers. He was the perfect model for us to follow after. In Obadiah, we see Christ foreshadowed, prophesied as the ruler over God's kingdom. In Jonah, just as Jonah said, uh, was, he stayed in that whale or that giant fish, whatever it was, it was a massive sea creature. Just as Jonah stayed in that fish's belly for three days and three nights, so also did Christ stay in that tomb three days and three nights. And He told the Jews during His first century ministry that the prophet Jonah is the sign that I leave for you to consider about my identity as the Messiah. In the book of Micah, we find that the birthplace of the Messiah would be in Bethlehem. It's exactly where Christ was born. In Nahum, the redemption secured by Jesus over our enemies, sin, Satan, and death, that is good news to be proclaimed to all sinners. Just as Nahum pictured that victory in his book, so also does Christ demonstrate that, realize in His life, and we see that proclaimed throughout the New Testament. In Habakkuk, we see the Gospel declared in that passage in Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4, and it's repeated over and over and over throughout the New Testament. And what is that Gospel declaration? Simply this, my friends, that faith is the only way for sinners to be made right before a holy God. That the just those who are declared righteous in the sight of God, they shall live by faith. Romans 1.17, and you see all the cross-references in your handouts. Zephaniah, there will be a king who will reign in the midst of his people during a future glorious reign over the earth. Israel will enjoy a golden age pictured in Zephaniah. Christ will be that king for Israel's golden age in the future. Haggai, Jesus is prophesied to be a descendant of Zerubbabel, hard name to pronounce, but Jesus would fulfill this Old Testament prophecy in spades. Another great encouragement of the Old Testament picturing Christ through prophecies, types, pictures, foreshadows, and so on. Just two more. Zechariah, the Messiah arriving into Jerusalem on a donkey. What we find Christ doing just before He would be crucified. His Passion Week. And lastly in Malachi, John the Baptist, who would come in the spirit and the power of Elijah as the forerunner to the Messiah. That's exactly what happened with Christ. 
Christ came after the forerunner preceded him. John the Baptist called people to a baptism of repentance. And Jesus is the fulfillment of what that baptism signified. We repent and believe and we follow the Lord's commands to be baptized because Christ has come and He was everything that He claimed to be and that He was supposed to be as declared throughout the Old Testament Scriptures. My friends, this is the glory of the Gospel mystery realized in Jesus Christ as, ex- as expected in the Old Testament as revealed in the New Testament, as decreed in eternity past, as will be celebrated in eternity future. Do you know the one to whom the Gospel points? Have you believed in the one who is the center of all of the universe? He's the center of human history. He's the center of God's purposes. Have you surrendered your life to Him By faith alone. Is He your all in all? Let us pray. Our Father in Heaven, as we've seen so many times over the past three lessons, You are a God who is absolutely sovereign over all things. From eternity past to eternity future, Lord, You orchestrate every single detail of created reality to to unfold exactly as you desire for it to unfold. You're just like you're just like a good and godly earthly father who is in control over the affairs of his household. Yet you are so much more than that, Father. You are a you are a perfect heavenly father. You are all knowing, all powerful, entirely sovereign, all wise. There's nothing that happens at the molecular level, and there's nothing that happens on the macro level, in this universe or in history that you do not manage and preside over. It all happens in accordance with your good and perfect purposes. Lord, may that lead us to worship you. May we rejoice in knowing that we serve a God who is so much bigger than our sin, so much bigger than the troubles that we encounter in this world, so much bigger than the universe in which we inhabit. Lord, would that drive us to worship You? Would we also be led to worship You in light of the atoning work of Christ, which we've considered today in this sermon really, really in depth, and also as we touched on at several points yesterday? Father, I pray that the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, His ascension into heaven, the reality that He's returning again someday to judge the living and the dead and to rule over all the universe in the new heavens and the new earth, Father, that those realities would, for us who are believers, give us great comfort. Lord, that it would motivate us to be who you called us to be, to fight off the deeds of the flesh, to repent when we fall short of your glory, to be zealous for good works, to take your gospel to the people in our lives who don't know you. And Father, I pray for those here that don't know You through faith in Christ. Lord, they have been exposed to so much truth this weekend. And Father, that comes with great responsibility. I pray that if there be anybody here who does not know You, they know it right now as I pray. They know that they don't know You. They've not repented of their sins. They've not surrendered to Christ's Lordship. It's just head knowledge. Or it's all new And they feel the conviction of sin for either the first time or for one of a few times that they've truly been convicted, regardless of where they stand as an unbeliever. Father, I pray you'd bring them to saving faith. Lord, if they have any questions, give them boldness to ask questions during small group time or to come to a leader so that we might point them to Christ, that they might be forgiven of their sins and reconciled to you. And Father, I pray that whether... People here today are saved or unsaved. May it be known to all of us, for this is most important, that you are the goal of all things. We do not exist for ourselves. This universe does not exist by chance or by accident. It exists for your glory. And you will be glorified in the salvation and the damnation 
of every person who will ever live. Your glory will be made manifest. May that be known by every person who is listening to these messages this weekend at Gospel Camp. For you are worthy to be worshipped, served, and adored. Bless us now, Lord, as we transition into our small group time. Father, I pray that you keep every person here safe as they participate in the games and and all the activities that the Jenkins have planned. We thank you for their hospitality, for the food that is being provided, for the space that's been provided. Pray for a special blessing upon them and their family. We commit the rest of this day to you in Christ's name. Amen.